Well, my name is Orlando Mashrun. I'm an associate um, director at the Royal Court Theatre and the creative director of Euphoric Inc. And it gives me enormous pleasure and to be, I'm so honoured to be able to introduce you all to the esteemed and award-winning playwright, Tony Kushner. So, um, as you all know, we are here today, this evening, to talk about, uh, specifically talk about Angels in America, Tony. I'd like to start by going back nearly 30 years ago, as it is now, and, and to ask you the question, where you were at, sort of, uh, literally, sort of geographically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, etc., when you first thought, okay, here we go, I'm going to write this play. Um... Oh my God, I feel like I've told this story so many. Uh, um, I was, let's see. I mean, the first time I did anything that was connected to the play uh, was in 1985. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, um, I had a National Endowment of the Arts uh, directing fellowship at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. And I was mm -hmm. spending a year in St. Louis, Missouri, um, which was interesting in itself, but uh, 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 I, uh, a friend of mine who had been a dancer at uh, it, at the NYU um, graduate program for dance. I was a, I had graduated from NYU directing um, in 1984. Uh, uh, this very nice guy named uh, uh, Bill. I won't say his last name. Um, who was a friend of mine. Uh, I got word around November 1985 that he had died of AIDS, and he was the first person that I um, had been close to. Um, we weren't tremendously co close, but he was a friend uh, who had uh, uh, died of AIDS. And um, I wrote a poem. Um, I had a dream uh, that night uh, of Bill uh, on his bed in his pajamas. Um, and uh, the ceiling of his bedroom uh, fell in and an angel came through. Uh, and I, I wrote a poem. I'm not a poet. No one will ever see this poem. Um, <laughs> I hope it doesn't exist anymore. It may be somewhere in my papers, but yeah. if I find it, I'll burn it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it was a way of sort of thinking about what had happened and, and this feeling of, of everything falling apart. Yeah. Not dissimilar to the feeling we're having these days. Um, uh, but, um, uh, you know, a, a sense that, that on, on every conceivable le level, the political, the um, biological, the ecological, um, in a way the theological, there was a, a feeling of a kind of impending apocalypse. And of course, this was in the mid-80s, so there was actually the uh, millennium yeah. approaching. And I, so I wrote this poem. Um, I think in the poem there were also Mormons. Um, uh, <laughs> there, I can explain why, but maybe you don't feel you need to know. Yeah. But, uh, but I think I had mentioned the Mormons in this poem. It was a long poem. Everything I write is long. Yeah. Um, those <laughs> of you who are here yeah. to see the show will know what I mean You'll in about four that. hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but this is a really fast one. The second one is longer. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, I wrote this poem, and, and, I, and it, it had a title. The title was Angels in America. Yeah. And right around that time, I met Oscar Eustace, 
who uh, ran a th political theater company called the Eureka Theater Company mm. in San Francisco. And Oscar um, had uh, asked me to come and do a reading of my first play, A Bright Room Called Day in San Francisco. Um, then they did a production of it and Oscar uh, uh, um, asked me if uh, I would uh, take a commission to write a new play for the Eureka. They had a standing company of three straight women and one straight man. Um, and, uh, but they're very political and it was San Francisco and I, was, I had come out about two years before, but it was a, a chance I felt to really deal with being gay. So I said yes to writing the play and I told him I had a title and I decided the title would be Angels in America. Yeah. And then the things, that, and Roy Cohn had died in between, 1980, he died in 1986. So yeah. by the time I started working on the play, which is around the end of 1987, um, Roy had died, and I had been struggling with a lot of complicated feelings about that. Yeah. And, um, and Reagan was still president, yeah. and, uh, and his vice president, then George H.W. Bush, won uh, uh, the presidency in 1988, and it felt like this n political nightmare was never going to go away. The epidemic was changing, but it was still... Uh, um, a very terrifying time, and people were still getting sick and, and dying. Uh, it wasn't quite the death sentence, um, a diagnosis of, of HIV infection um, in 1985, 1986 was sort of, you know, basically being told that you were going to die within a few months, a few months at best. Yeah. Um, some people, at that time, it was inexplicable that some people didn't, but very, very few. Most yeah. people just got sick and, and, and died, and there was very little... Uh, uh, to be done. In the um, second part of, of Angels, uh, you start to hear about AZT, yeah. which was just on the horizon. And even though it's gotten a very bad reputation, deservedly, it's a terrible drug. Yeah. But it was the first thing that actually slowed it down a little bit. Like that. And, and that began to change things. By the time I started writing, uh, treatment, pro I mean, treatment protocols would become sophisticated. And, and within about a year or so, um, the, these sort of uh, triple cocktail uh, combination therapies were basically beginning to turn uh, HIV infection into a maintenance kind of illness. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, a certain amount of progress has been made since mm. then. But. Now, in terms of the, the style and form, because obviously when the play came here, it, it you know, it was sensational, but for one of the reasons it was sensational, it was, it was extraordinary in, the, in its form and uh, the, the breadth of it and the, the way you manifest those ideas, all of those feelings. And is, was that typical of the way that you were writing at that time or did, was the play a new departure for you in that respect? Well, it was my second play. I mean, yeah. that's not really true. I, there, are, there are other plays like the poem, like the poem no yes. one will see. Yes. Um, uh, but it, it was my second sort of official play. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, things changed a lot for me as a writer. I'm uh, uh, devoted to uh, the writings of Bertolt Brecht. Uh, I remain um, in, uh, uh, deeply indebted to and um, in love with uh, Brecht's plays and his poems and his theoretical writings. Uh, the first play that I wrote, A Bright Room Called Day, was, a real, was actually an attempt to imitate, at least formally, uh, the uh, Brecht's play, Fear and Misery of the Third Reich. I mean, it was, um, I needed a play to imitate because I didn't know what I was doing, so I decided to do that one because it was the least intimidating of the Brecht uh, plays. Um, 
but I wrote an outline and I followed the, it was 24 scenes in for Bright Room Called Day and I, and I each scene uh, in the outline turned into a scene for the, of, in the play. Right. I mean, it just sort of behaved itself. Um, and right away with Angel, something else started to happen. The characters didn't want to do what the outline said they were supposed to do. <laughs> um, and uh, things began to shift and change. And Oscar felt that Bright Room Called Day was uh, too long at three hours. He had directed the first production of it at the Eureka. And uh, he felt that it was too long at three hours. It needed to be, uh, my next play should be shorter. Um, <laughs> so he actually made me sign a contract that said that I would write a two and a half hour play with songs. Uh, that was my idea. The songs didn't last. There are a couple of lines in the plays that are from these really bad lyrics that I wrote. But uh, um, I actually signed a contract saying that, that which is, I'm sure when, when everybody was doomed because of that, I you know, sort of like had to fuck with that. Um, uh, the uh, play was supposed to be only two and a half hours and the angel's supposed to drop um, through the ceiling at int but right before intermission, yeah. so about an hour and 10 minutes into it. And by the time I had written about 125 pages, which is two hours of stage time, she still hadn't shown up. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And, and then I wrote the scene, um, you'll see it if you're coming tonight, at, uh, uh, the, at the uh, second scene of Act 3, um, uh, a scene between the character of Lewis Ironson and Belize, um, and, and uh, they're at a coffee shop, and Lewis, uh, the first line of the scene is, why has democracy succeeded in America? And I, uh, this sounds really sort of but uh, I had written 120 pages. I sent them to Oscar. Oscar said, well, they're good, but I don't know. You know, it's getting pretty long. And uh, I was getting nervous. And I also felt like this thing was turning into something really big and complicated. And I felt a little bit, con I mean, I really liked what I was doing, but I felt like I'm not sure where I'm going with any of this. And I'm not sure how, how I'm going to pull all of this together and when is the angel going to show up. Uh, and I decided to do something I'd never done before. I thought, well, what if I ask one of the characters to just explain the play to me? And I sat down at my desk and I decided to ask Lewis because it, in certain ways you'll see this also tonight. He's <laughs> a little sense. bit like me. Um, <laughs> I'm a much nicer person than Lewis is, but, he's, but Lewis is not. Uh, and Lewis is a very good person, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I asked him to explain to me what, the, what he thought the play was about, and I just waited, and then I, I heard his voice uh, saying, uh, why has democracy succeeded in America? And by succeeded, I mean not literally, not in the, and he just started talking, and I started writing, and I felt like I was just taking dictation, and then I began to realize that he was very nervous, and then I began to realize that he was talking to someone, and I realized it was Belize, and it went on and on and on and on. By the time I was done, I had, a, I think it's 16 pages uh, in manuscript, which is a long scene. And uh, that wasn't doing much to help make the play shorter. <laughs> um, and then we, I flew to, Oscar said, okay, why don't you just come to, New York, uh, to San Francisco and we'll do a reading of what you have. And on the flight over, I wrote the last scene with uh, Roy and Joe. And the surprise, I won't say in case anybody hasn't heard, but something happens that's surprising in that scene that happened on, on, I do all my best writing on airplanes. And I, I arrived in San Francisco and we read it and the democracy in America scene, the scene between mm. Lewis and Belize went really, really well. And it was sort of clear that we didn't, nobody would want to cut it. And uh, 
At that point, Sigrid Wurschmidt, who was the actress for whom I wrote the part of the angel, who had breast cancer and was uh, very, very sick. She died before the play um, was first produced, but she was at the first reading and, and read the, uh, the angel. And she was the first person to say after the reading, um, well, you can't cut this, this, and this, and this. Yeah. She asked me if I had stuff written um, past that, and I showed her my notebooks, and she went right to this sketch I had for Harper's last speech in Perestroika. And she said, well, you have to do this. And I said, well, I, but how can we do it? It's, and she said, well, it'll be two evenings long, which I thought was nuts. Yeah. Um, and here we are. <laughs> um, so it, it was a very different. Yeah. And, it, and but presumably Oscar was supportive. Yeah, I mean, everybody sort of, everybody kind of got with it. Uh, yeah. it. It felt weird, you know, uh, Nicholas Nickleby had been in the United States, I guess, in the late 70s, 70s early yeah. 80s. Yeah. And, and that had been this huge success in the United States. Yeah. But Americans didn't do two-part two plays. Yeah. Um, and, and so it felt kind of nuts uh, to, to think about doing it. But then... Um, we did a production, uh, uh, a sort of a out-of-the-way production of the first part in a small theater in L.A., uh, connected to the Mark Taper Forum, which eventually did the whole thing. And um, a guy from the National Theater was in the audience and saw it. And the next thing I know, I got a call from Richard Ayer saying, right. we'd like to do it at the Cottesloe, and Declan Donnellan uh, will, uh, Nick Ormerod will do the production if, if that's okay. And I said, great. And then it all sort of Took off launched. Yeah. yeah. That so. was lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I've been uh, very lucky yeah. uh, with this play so all along. So I mean, well. <laughs> um, and when you're writing, or rather when you wrote this particular play, did you have your audience in mind? Or do you, do you ever think about the audience? Or is that, that's not helpful? Well, 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 well uh, what I always say when I'm teaching playwriting uh, is that uh, you should have an audience in mind since that's your job, is to mm. write with, for an audience. Um, the audience should be people just like you. They should be very friendly. Uh, never listen to the nonsense about preaching to the choir or preaching to the converted. Mm. That's preposterous, of course. When you go into any church or temple or mosque, the preacher is preaching to the converted. You don't usually go into a synagogue and find it full of Baptists or, you know, it's confusing evangelism with, uh, with ministry. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you're talking to the faithful, you're talking to people who have, share your faith and consequently also share your doubts. Mm. And you all hold hands together and walk forward into what's not known. Because, of course, the essential concomitant to any great faith is a great doubt. Um, and, and that's what great preachers do. Um, so I, uh, I, I feel like you make a terrible mistake if you think of an audience as being adversarial or hostile. Audiences always are a little bit because mm. it becomes a kind of a wrestling match between the people on, up here and the people out there. And the audience forms into a kind of a a very hungry beast in the dark, but um, you, you want to tell, you want to write plays, I think, about things that you don't know and don't understand. And if you're telling people what you already understand and sort of, you know, you, if a preacher does that, he or she is boring. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the point is to go into uh, the perplexing and confounding aspects of life and faith. Uh, and I think that you need courage to do that, and I think it, it really helps to think of 
you know, the audience is knowing everything you know, sharing all of your assumptions and prejudices and confusions, and, uh, um, you know, convening for the purpose of, of watching a, a, a new world being created on stage that may um, generate meaning of some sort mm -hmm. that's of use to them, or it may not. I mean, that's the contract you make with them. You're not uh, telling people what to do. You're not giving them marching orders. It's, uh, it's you know, it's Midsummer Night's Dream, what is it, Act 5, Scene 1, you know, it's it's you make, uh, uh, you have the same relationship to the audience that your unconscious has yeah. to yourself when you're dreaming, when you're out cold, mm. and you may remember it or not remember it or choose to use it or not use it. So it's, uh, I, I think that it's, you know, it's just enormously important to entertain people, yeah. uh, not to bore them. Yeah. Um, the other thing I always tell my playwriting students is that if you, think about, uh, you know, having a, uh, six weeks of an audience of 800 people or something, which is a regional theater and a run of a play in a regional theater in the United States. I'm not good at math, but if you multiply, you know, 800 people times eight performances times six yeah. weeks uh, uh, and think of those people being bored, you know, you're basically like killing a small child by you're wasting enough human life yeah. to have you know, <laughs> sort of, uh, taken out a toddler. And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, you have this kind of sacrosanct yeah. responsibility to not be uh, a bore. And, you know, and you, f you choose what you think is really genuinely entertaining and what uh, is entertaining but in a, in a kind of a non-nutritional, uh, uh, not meaningful way. Um, or if you think you have uh, the means to do it, to produce uh, entertainment that, sure. that has a kind of a richness and a, a meaning generator. Yeah. And you talked about, obviously, uh, someone from the National Theatre being in America, seeing those early performances. I think it was Tim Supple. Oh, was it Tim? Right. I think so. Right, okay. Yeah. And I think it was, yeah. it was either in LA or it was in San Francisco at the first right. performance right. there. And once you knew it was going to, uh, the play was going to come to the UK, transfer uh, to London, obviously it's subtitled uh, a, gay a Gay Fantasia on National Themes. Were you at all concerned about how it might resonate and translate once it went over? We had some concerns. I, I mean, I stole the subtitle from George Bernard Shaw, so it felt yeah. a little bit like it was, since Shaw had so much to do with the creation of the National Theatre, it felt like yeah. it was coming home a little bit. But yeah, we were worried. I think that Declan uh, and Richard Eyre put in the program, maybe it's in the program in this production, but there was like a little glossary saying who Rose, uh, Roy Cohn was and who various yeah. other people were in the McCarthy era, just so in case anybody was uh, un unclear. Sure. But um, the play's been done all over the world now and it yeah. seems to have, you know, I mean, it feels like a very American play. To me, everything I write feels Mm -hmm. uh, American, but this year, uh, Hampstead did uh, the Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to the Scriptures, which is partially stolen from Shaw, the <laughs> title. Uh, um, he's a very good person to steal from. Um, and, uh, and Carolina Change was just at yeah. Chichester, and those all feel uh, deeply American to me, but um, I've had a nice time yeah. uh, here in the UK and I feel very, I'm beginning to feel more and more at home uh, doing my work here. So, right. um, 
and who knows, I mean, I may be applying for citizenship someday soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> refugee status. <laughs> yeah, which, which brings us, I, I asked you where you were 30 years ago. I, mean, I think it, it makes sense to ask you where you are now in the, a play that speaks, that's why I asked about the audience, because it spoke directly to its audience at the time. And you say it feels a very American play. Um, has it been done recently in the States? Oh, yeah, it's always being done. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's done in a lot of colleges and a lot of um, regional theaters. And uh, it was done in 2010. Uh, there was a big revival in New York mm. uh, um, at the Signature Theater. Uh, and I'm hoping that, that there's a possibility that this production with this cast will come to New York. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's always... Yeah. popping up here and there. And it feels like a really great time uh, to be doing it. I mean, I feel like it, it's uh, in ways that I'm pleased with and in other ways that I wish were, uh, it wasn't the case. It, you yeah. know, we're, we're in, um, I always do well during Republican administrations. <laughs> my place are, uh, it was hard. I mean, during the Obama years, I admired him so much. I admire him so much. I think he was one of our greatest presidents. I think he's a great statesman on the world historical stage. And, and I, I mean, I was just, you know, had a huge crush on him. And, and, uh, and I think he was a very, very great president. And, and uh, so it was a little hard. I mean, I wrote the movie Lincoln. Um, you know, during his first term and, uh -huh. and finished one draft uh, watching his re-election results come in. In fact, I finished both the 08 election and 2012 uh, on the couch because I'm late with everything, uh, <laughs> working on a, a draft of Lincoln. And it felt like uh, Obama's Lincoln to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, felt, uh, it felt like that. Um, but it was, I'm, I think I... I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf says, we were talking about Jane Austen earlier today, and you know, that, that wonderful thing that Virginia Woolf says is that the miraculous thing about Austen, and she says it's probably true of Shakespeare too, is that he, he wrote and she wrote without apparently any anger. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Woolf was worried about, um, and she compares, I think, uh, Woolf to Charlotte Bronte, who had anger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that, that anger has a limiting effect. Brecht had the same concern. He, he worried in his po great poem to posterity that, uh, hatred even of an injustice distorts the features and coarsens the voice. Um, but I think I, I, I do my best work when I'm really, really mad yes. um, or terrified. So, as I said, Republican administrations yeah, are yeah. like, oh, and, that, and, and I've and never been as mad or as terrified as I am at this very moment. So, you know, yeah. it's... Um, That's what, I, yeah, I mean, that was my question. Where are you now? Where the, the position you're in a up? nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, we were talking backstage about the, the, his tweet yesterday and his gothic obsession with women and bleeding. I mean, it was like, as they say, Freud would yawn. Um, it's, <laughs> but, you know, you just don't usually expect to see, you know, this, this animated id fragment screeching, you know, his primary process, mm. incoherent muck. Uh, from the Oval Office, from it's the just White House. Yeah. fucking terrifying. So, so that's where I am. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I also I was here last year to do a uh, conference at Oxford on Brecht, uh, and I arrived on Thursday night, uh, the day of the Brexit vote. Went to bed, 
the last thing I saw was Nigel Farage saying, oh, well, it's over, we've lost, there's rainstorms and they didn't come out and it's over. So I fell asleep and woke up to shrieks of horror uh, and then went down to Oxford, you know, to talk about the death of democracy in the Weimar Republic. So it was, <laughs> what a year it's been. <laughs> are you writing at a moment? Is it, are you channeling it, Tony? Uh, well, I probably am in the things that I'm working on. Yeah. I, I am actually, I've, I've started tinkering with the idea of a play about Trump. I've, I, I, I don't think he's interesting because uh, he's a human being, of course, but he's so severely damaged. I mean, he's boring. Um, it's, you know, uh, babies are wonderful and fascinating because you know they're going to grow up and turn into people and they're gorgeous as babies. They're sort of luminous and lovely. He is neither of those things <laughs> and he's 70, so the chance that he's going to grow up into anything better than this, it's, it's over. He's been this <laughs> since he was an infant. Yeah. And, and Fred and whatever his mother's name is did whatever they did to him to make him into this. Um, he's, he's a borderline psychotic. And, and, and so those people are not very interesting. I mean, I don't think that that was true of Roy Cohn. It's the reason when I wanted to write about Reagan, I picked someone who I think actually was a coherent human being who had a, his contradictions were organized around a coherent core. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's true of Reagan and I don't think it's true of Donald Trump. So, I mean, there's n he will not, he may horrify us. Uh, he may justify our worst expectations. He will never really surprise us. I don't think that there's a possibility that he will suddenly stand up and you know, deliver the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Uh, I think my little poodle is more likely to do that. Um, <laughs> And is a much nicer animal than Donald. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I th so I th that's kind of not a great recipe for a dramatic character. Yeah. But there are people around him who are, uh, you yeah. know, unfortunately one of them's name is Kushner, which is like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no relation. <laughs> no relation. Kushner is like Smith in, yeah. in <laughs> Eastern Europe. I mean, it's not yeah. you know. And there are many Kushners, and they do good things. There's Alexander <laughs> Kushner, the poet, and <laughs> Bernard Kushner who founded, you know, Medicine San Frontier, and then there's yeah. Jared. Um, uh. <laughs> it's like, well, you know. This is like your play. It's oh, like God. <laughs> um, but I, there, there are some things that are, that are yeah. of, of interest. And, you know, I mean, this is the culmination. The thing that I'm most angry about is this sort of, uh, this sort of pretense of, of, of the kind of, you know, offended Republicans. Uh, um, you, you heard more from them before he got the nomination that, that this is a sort of an alien visitation on the otherwise, you know, sort of honorable Republican Party. But they've been working on this. This is the culmination in the same way that you could say that Hitler was the, you know, culmination of the, of the uh, grand project of the German right for decades. Mm. This guy is, I mean, you tell people for 40 years that government is the enemy, it's a disease, it's, it's, it's the, you know, it's the villain of every story. Eventually, they're going to actually believe you and literally vote in somebody who is only capable of destroying any possibility of, of, of benevolent governance. I mean, that's the only thing that we know for sure about him is that, that if he occupies that position, it will fall apart because it's not possible for an incoherent mess like that to be a coherent mm. executive. Um, and, and, 
this is what they've been working for. I mean, and, and you know, and they may, you know, this may be in a way the, the, the reversal of the results of the American Civil War because they've already destroyed Congress. It hasn't done anything in eight years. Uh, this guy seems to be dismantling the executive branch. If they can get another Gorsuch or two into the Supreme Court, they really will win. All the states will take over and the federal government will die simply by virtue of, you know, grotesque um, abrogation of any responsibility that each of those branches has. And, and anyway, all right, I'll stop. Um, <laughs> and on that note, Tony Kushner. All right, well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you very much.